Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. How many companies off the top of your head can you name that have been around 100 years or more? How many do you know that aspire to thriving for 200 years? My guess is probably few, if not zero. Well, I am very happy that after today's episode, you'll know at least one. My special guest is at the helm of a company founded in 1914. Joining the company in 2008, right before a big recession, he led a roughly $30 million business to about $400 million in 2021, much of that due to more than 20 acquisitions. You may not be surprised that they're leaders in their industry, though might not guess that we're talking about a trusted HVAC contractor providing residential and commercial heating, cooling, and plumbing services that, by the way, is 100% owned by management and employees. And I am charged up for you to hear a compelling story of growth, one that proves having unique commitment to employees powers a distinctive culture and sustained success. I am honored to welcome an evergreen leader. We'll learn more about that. And my fellow Cornelian, the President and Chief Executive Officer of HB Global LLC, Bob Whalen. Bob, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Molly, uh, good morning and thank you. I thank you. It's such a delight. This topic is near and dear to me because I want listeners to know that there really are awesome places to work. And uh, I am blown away by your aspiration to build an enterprise to last 200 years. Very thrilled to know another proud alum of Cornell, of course, both undergrad and in business school. Go Big Red. Shout out to Ithaca. Um, And at a time, you know, when the headlines are about the great resignation, people being disengaged at work, it's reaffirming for listeners to hear that, yes, awesome cultures and workplaces are out there. Uh, before we go there, Bob, uh, your own journey to this point in time was hardly scripted. So I appreciate you sharing your own background. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. I, you know, I grew up in Lemoyne, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm the oldest of four boys uh, that were, uh, we were all within five years uh you know, apart from each other. Uh, And I think my birth order, you know, was the first really big, you know, influence on on how I lead. Uh, You know, I first, uh, you know, was expected to be responsible for my younger siblings, uh, which kind of, you know, uh, you know, led me um, to use uh, my responsibility strength and just how I grew up, uh, you know, every day. Uh, and, um, you know, I think I uh, embraced, uh, you know, leadership positions, uh, you know, as I was growing up, whether it be captain of the sports teams or, or whatever, really because of that, 
you know, where I was uh, in our family. And I think it also, our closest in age, really reinforced the importance of family for me, uh, which would be, you know, a primary influence, you know, I think on, on my worldview and, and you know, how I look at things. Uh, you know, the second thing, you know, obviously growing up is I had two great parents, uh, you know, and just feel extremely blessed uh, to have the parents that I had. Uh, and they were incredibly selfless uh, with us. Uh, you know, I think they were really parents before their times. You really, uh, you know, hear a lot of stories today about parents giving, you know, all to uh, their kids. And, you know, sometimes I think it, it gets a bad name. But from my perspective, you know, that was really influential in our life. My parents were always there for us. You know, and when I think about my dad, you know, he really prided himself uh, in his work ethic. I mean, he took a tremendous amount of pride uh, in how hard he worked. You know, it was core to his being. I remember him telling a story uh, about being, you know, on a roof. He was an electrician and their job was to wire all these uh, rooftop units. It was 90 degrees and it was a really big complex uh, so they were going to be, you know, wiring these rooftop units for, for weeks. And, you know, he took pride at late in his career about working all the young kids, you know. And so that came through to us really and how we approached everything. And then, you know, when I think about my mom, uh, you know, she was very kind and nurturing to us. You know, that was a, a big part of the role she played in our family. But she was also an entrepreneur. And, uh, you know, really did all kinds of, you know, entrepreneurial, uh, you know, efforts as we were growing up. So we saw that. And I think that that was, you know, a really big influence on my life uh, was just to see her do that, see her willingness to take risk, uh, you know, got to see some things that really worked out well and, and some others uh, that didn't work out as well. Uh, you know, but I know, you know, mom had a saying that, you know, nobody is better than you and you are no better than anybody else. And, you know, I think that that was really impactful, you know, on me and how I've approached business uh, because, you know, I have uh, not been fearful about taking on, uh, you know, risk as part of my career, but I've also appreciated the role that every single employee uh, plays in, in what we do. And there's not one person within our company that doesn't have a very critical role. And I think it's been a real influence, you know, on how I view how value should be distributed uh, to the people that work for your company. And then I think growing up, the last big influence, uh, you know, in my life was sports. Uh, you know, Maybe a little embarrassed to say it now, but I, as a kid, I certainly took sports a lot more seriously uh, than I did my academics, uh, you know, and it just taught me, you know, so many lessons, you know, putting the team first, uh, you know, find a, a way to play to your strengths and how you can uh, help the team succeed, uh, outwork everybody, you uh, you know, wanting to be somebody that wanted the ball so that you wanted to to get the opportunity to make a, a big play. 
you know, to believe in yourself and, and so much more. And so, you know, I, as, as I think about, you know, my upbringing, you know, I think those are the things, uh, you know, that most influence, uh, you know, my life. And then I think of myself as a, as a lifetime learner also, you know, that's something involved with, you know, love uh, to give a shout out to, to my mother-in-law. Uh, you know, I, I married my high school sweetheart. And so I was as much around their house in my high school years as, as I was at mine. And she's really the one that turned me on to reading. And so in my adult life, uh, you know, reading has become a huge part of my professional experience. And, uh, you know, I think she's played a really influential role in getting me to that point because, you know, as I mentioned, you know, growing up, I was much more focused on sports than I was, you know, what I was doing in school. I was doing what I had to do uh, to meet my parents' expectations uh, in school. Uh, but she really turned me on to reading. And, uh, you know, I would, I, I think my business uh, career has, a, has been a lot different, you know, in how I've just focused, you know, on continuing to learn as I've gone through my career. That is phenomenal. I'm just so smiley that you married your high school sweetheart. That is fabulous. <laughs> it's, uh, it's uh, you know, I think it's really a unique experience because we grew up together. Uh, you know, we uh, not only was she my high school sweetheart, she was a friend of mine in middle school, be, you know, before we dated. So, you know, we knew each other growing up all the way from the time when we just started coming into adulthood to figuring out how to do a long distance relationship in college to getting married right after college. And then, you know, obviously raising our, our children together. And now, you know, really going through the empty nest for the first time, you know, over the last couple of years, it's, it's just such a, you know, exciting journey to be on with somebody uh, you know, that, that frankly, you care more about them than you do yourself. And, and I know, you know, Mandy feels that same way. And so I feel, you know, really grateful uh, to have been able to, you know, experience that together. That just warms my heart. And I can imagine, Bob, that when you have that level of just stability in your home life, uh, and the relationship part, but I'm sure, you know, there's bumps along the way, but that paves the way to complement um, what you're doing at work. You know, when you have, I think, such a, a strong support foundation, because you come across that way, you come across like bedrock. I mean, I have to say, you know, it just, and, and that's, um, that's a real blessing for you. And I imagine for the folks you lead, they feel that too. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate that because it's so true. You know, I, I think about, you know, when we established our ESOP, there was a whole conference room worth of paper, you know, and, and Mandy had, had uh, you know, for most of uh, the time we were raising our kids, you know, she stayed at, at home with the kids full time, worked at home full time, um, you know, but we were there signing all those papers. And she said, what am I signing? And, uh, and before I could even answer, she said, never mind, it doesn't matter. I trust you. And you know, that's how we feel about each other. And I think, you know, in our relationships, we, we've had some, you know, very clear, uh, 
deviation of, of duties. And, uh, you know, she trusts me implicitly with, with what we do uh, in business. And, and I trust her on all the really important things, uh, you know, that she's responsible for our, in our life. And, you know, predominantly uh, with a lion's share of, uh, you know, helping the kids to become, you know, what they've become. Yeah, no, it's incredible. I think you had mentioned you have four children. Is that the right number? I have four children as well, uh, two girls and two boys, and we could not be more proud of them. Three of them, uh, Mary, we've gone through uh, three weddings in the last 21 months. So it's been exciting time for the Whalen family. Oh, I'm just so beaming. It's so fabulous. Okay, let's jump to the, you know, being the oldest. Was college, you know, an expectation, a stretch, a get, you know, where where, where was the uh, the value on going to college and how did you navigate that? Yeah, I, I it turned out uh, that I was the first college graduate in the family. I think my mom had one cousin um, that also, they graduated from college in her generation, but uh you know, college was not something uh, that was part of our family be- beforehand, but it was ac- absolutely an expectation uh, for us growing up. And my parents, you know, saved as they went along and, you know, did all the things, you know, clearly with uh, an expectation uh, we were going to go to college. And, and so uh, I never remember thinking anything but that. And that's, you know, just how it was for us growing up. So how did you, you know, it's not like you had a lot of role models to figure out the application, where to go, how to pay for it. So how did you work that? Well, luckily for me, uh, I uh, had some success on the athletic fields. And so I was uh, recruited uh, predominantly uh, for wrestling. And so there were a number of schools that were, were interested in me, interested in me wrestling for their programs. And they, you know, basically make sure that you apply on time, that you do all the things that you uh, needed to do. Uh, certainly had guidance counselors in school that were counseling us as well. You know, went to a real high quality uh, public school here in central Pennsylvania, Cedarcliff High School, uh, which... Uh, you know, just think, you know, really prepared me in so many ways uh, for adulthood. Uh, but I, you know, it was all of those things uh, that, that really, uh, you know, set the stage uh, for me to apply into college and, you know, ended up choosing the University of Virginia and, and was there for two years and transferred to Cornell for my second two years, really, uh, because of, uh, the wrestling program. I was, I really enjoyed the University of Virginia, both academically uh, and from the social side. Uh, but, you know, wrestling was just, and it was such a big, important part of my life. It just wasn't uh, what I wanted it to be. And so I transferred to, to Cornell uh, to wrestle for, for Coach Jack Spates and, and Rob Cole, who had an up and coming program. And, and, Really, it was everything I had hoped it would be. And, you know, we ended up placing in the top 10 in the NCAAs my senior year. Uh, and it was really a great experience. And so, you know, that that kind of has just become the, you know, the, the fabric. I got to experience two different college situations. Uh, they were both really great in their own way. And, and uh, I'm thankful for it. 
Oh, so fabulous. The college athlete, I'm always blown away, you know, and Cornell's not exactly a skate, uh, a school to skate through academically too. So the ability to, to net, to, to, to handle both um, and come out of that is beautiful. Uh, so job wise, uh, how did that, uh, you know, was that a, a natural, was that a, uh, did you know what you, you wanted to do as a senior? Uh, Molly, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And, you know, luckily for me, uh, I had a, a mentor uh, that was willing to, uh, you know, put some time into me very early on because of the connection from the high school and wrestling. Uh, and he was a business person, Bob Ortenzio. He was the president of Continental Medical Systems at the time, which was a publicly traded healthcare entity. Uh, you know, he arranged for me to do uh, a college internship in between my junior and senior year. And then that department offered me a job. And, you know, I basically, you know, just took the job because I needed a job. I had no idea uh, what I wanted to do. And I don't even think I had a vision, you know, for what my career was going to look like. I think at that point, you know, I was just thinking about making money. I, and, and I don't even believe at that point, you know, I really realized how important it was going to be for me to do something in my professional life, uh, first of all, that was interesting and challenging, you know, and then the importance of giving to other people. I, I think, you know, the values that I have for work at, at 52 are very different than what they were at 22. And, and I would say, you know, it's, it's an important aspect that I've recognized in life is just how much we evolve and change. And I wouldn't even articulate it as necessarily better. It's just as our circumstances change, you know, we change with it. Our value systems change. Some obviously uh, are foundational to who you are and they, and they stay, you know, very stable over time. Boy, there's a whole slew of things that I think very differently about now than when I was 22 years old and just, you know, so thankful for the people that, that took an interest, you know, over in the years to help develop me, um, you know, and, and Bob Ortensio was that, that first person that really gave me a chance. Uh, and, you know, a, a lot of my career, uh, you know, just started to be, you know, chasing, you know, those parts of my career that I found interesting and challenging and rewarding. Uh, and it's, you know, evolved over time to what it is today. That's amazing. You, it does sound like a very, I mean, you seem like you were a bit ahead of the game. And I get that being the oldest of five boys with uh, four boys within that amount of time. That's unbelievable to have that level of testosterone for your mom. So, I mean, my shout out to her, like, wow, that's a lot to, you to have no idea. I, I, I don't think I can. I, I'm really, when you said, it, I'm like, wow, that's just, she's like, Unbelievable. We broke everything in sight. I, it was just the the extended family when our aunts and uncles, when we would come into town, I think they just cringed. And uh, looking back on it, I, I just, I can't imagine, you know, what it would be like to see our family, you know, walking up the front stoop. They just had to just not wait until we left. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, so the, 
the the you know I always say we we when our struggles and uh, we learn the most from them. As you came up in this you know career path, do you recall some of the the missteps? ways you behave that maybe weren't so great? Um, or was it something you felt, you know, you were fairly on top of from a young age? I mean, I have all these moments of just cringeworthy moments. Any of the, you know, not so beautiful times you'd share? Well, I would tell you this. I have a lot of cringeworthy moments, first of all. Uh, most of them I, you know, tried to forget directly, uh, <laughs> but hopefully take the lessons from, you know, but there was a really profound one you know, for me that happened, you know, right around, uh, you know, I was 30 years old. Um, you know, I had started a little boutique consulting, uh, business and, uh, I was working for a company, uh, that was growing through acquisition and I was in employee benefits. And so, you know, you would integrate, uh, the new employees into the benefit program, and as the employee base grew, uh, the fees grew, you know, with them. Um, but sometimes the, the acquisitions were really large. And so, you know, there may be a very disproportionate amount of fee uh, that they had relative to what you really needed to, to operate the programs, you know, post-transaction. And one of those times, you know, I allowed myself to be talked into keeping the fee structure that the old company had had. And, uh, you know, frankly, the company, you know, a year later ended up calling us out on it. And which led, you know, over a period of time uh, to them moving on, you know, to another provider. And, you know, it was a real lesson for me. Uh you know, about, you know, really being thoughtful about what you're charging your customers for. You know, you may be able to get away with charging, you know, a little too much, um, but there's always that line and uh, you know what it is. And sometimes you try to put your head in the sand and you try to rationalize why you deserve it. But the reality is, you know, the market, sets, you know, what's, you know, fair uh, rates for your service. And if you get outside of that, uh, you're likely to pay for it. And, you know, I think it was, I lost a very good customer over it. And, you know, I think it ended up being one of those lessons. Uh, you know, I think the biggest thing I took from that is do the right thing, no matter what, you know, you if you just do what you know is right, more times than not, you're going to be well served by it. And, you know, I think it was an expensive, you know, lesson for me to learn. And uh, frankly, I'm, I'm very thankful to have gone through it. You know, it was a stressful time trying to, you know, make that customer relationship work. And, and they were a big part of, you know, my little boutique consulting business. And uh, it was painful to go through, uh, but I think I, I learned from it and become became better because of it. And it really just reaffirmed what you already knew was right. You know, it wasn't something that you didn't know. It was something you already knew, uh, but rationalized something different. And it was just a big lesson in my professional career that I've tried to keep in mind as I've gone forward. 
Thank you for sharing that wisdom. And I'm wondering how you um, got feedback from your team and created a sense of openness. I mean, obviously, that's, that's something that you you really excel at now. Um, earlier on, that can sometimes isn't as easy. So do you, do you remember how you stayed in touch with um, folks on your team, how you ensured that they actually told you what you needed to hear? Well, I think the ish, interesting thing about that is is it doesn't come naturally to me. So something I've always been open to is the feedback. Uh, and I've been lucky enough to be in situations uh, where, you know, we did some 360 evaluations and it was, you know, in a very safe environment where people could do it. For whatever reason, I think people do struggle uh, to give me that direct feedback. I take my work very seriously. You know, I'm intense about it. You know, I ask people for feedback all the time. It's, it's, it's a way that I've tried to overcome that, you know, but I think the first thing is to acknowledge that, you know, mine, for whatever reason, my natural, you know, personality probably doesn't lend itself to people just give that to me. And so I have to go through great lengths uh, to try to get that feedback, to try to create an environment uh, of safety in, in a lot of different ways, not exactly the way we want to be. We're probably not exactly the way we perceive ourselves. Lots of times we project things and we're perceived in a way that is not how we truly feel in our heart or, you know, in our soul. And so, you know, I think it's really important to find ways to get that. And, you know, and there's some individuals that people just feel this ability to give them everything. You know, I wish that were the case for me, but it just hasn't been. And so I've had to find other mechanisms to get that in my career. I so appreciate your own awareness of the dynamic. What are some of the ways you've tried to, you know, amp up the safe space and get the input? Well, I think it's directly to, to ask for it is one way. I, I think it, it's, you know, it's also to take opportunities where you can give people a really safe opportunity to give feedback, you know, where their, their feedback is going to be mixed in with, with a bunch of other people. You know, I, I think one thing that, that I've done is to show vulnerability and, and to be honest about myself and, and oftentimes have gotten feedback, you know, from other leaders that I'm working with. They don't think it's a, a, a really good I, idea to be as, as honest as I am about admitting a mistake. Uh, but I think admitting to your mistakes is incredibly important. First of all, I think it, it humanizes you uh, to the people you're leading. It's, it's honest. It's true. Uh, but I think it helps people to believe uh, they can give you direct feedback, too. And, you know, I, the, the example I would use that, that happened relatively recently was around the pandemic. You know, I came out very early. Uh, is being a, a proponent of people getting vaccinated. And let me tell you, in our industry, you know, we're not a highly vaccinated industry. Uh, there's a real independent streak that, that goes through construction. And so I came out very early as being a big proponent of getting vaccinated. And in my initial communication, I stated that I felt it was their societal duty to, to say so. Well, I got a lot 
of negative feedback to that. And, you know, I came out very soon after that and apologized, uh, but I did it uh, in what I thought was a way that was, was fruitful to, to how I really do believe that it's people's responsibility to get the vaccine, uh, to be thinking about the impact that it has on others. That being said, I don't think it's my role as the CEO to tell our employees what their values should be. Um, and, and, you know, that's a nuance, you know, but you, you see all this disingenuous apologizing when somebody does something that isn't received well, uh, when you know they don't believe that. And, and I do believe you know, I do believe it's my responsibility to do what I can relative to the pandemic to not only help myself, to help others. But it certainly is not, I do not believe it's my role as the CEO to communicate to others what their values should be. And for that, you know, I apologized. And there was a big debate internally about whether I should be willing to apologize for that or not. And, you know, I, this was one of those situations where, you know, I listened to the council, but, I, you know, I was unwilling to be swayed. I thought it was important uh, that we use as an opportunity to talk about it. And, you know, I think our employees respected my willingness uh, to do that. Great example of knowing, sticking to your true north, Bob. And, you know, when you, to your point, you do what you think uh, is the right thing. You do it to the best of your ability and you sleep well. And, you know, I, I would agree with you, the you know, vulner, vulnerability, it's a judgment call, and it's imperative um, in, the, in the way that feels right for any leader to, to show that. Otherwise, you don't seem real. And it's really hard for people to relate to leaders if they come across as somewhat perfect and um, don't have the opportunities to grow like, like everyone else does. I appreciate your leaning into asking for the feedback and for listeners. If you're a leader, you know, sometimes um, it is just know it is intimidating. And then if anyone offers something, all you need to do is say, gosh, thank you so much. That may not have been the easiest thing to say. And I appreciate your doing so. Boom. That's it. And that's, that really reinforces the safe space. It isn't, you don't have to debate it or talk about it or ask them why they think that and just say, you know, I, I know that you cared and, and it meant a lot to me that you said that. Um, so bravo on that. Share with us, you know, a bit of the, the company roots and, and, you know, where you took it and where it's going. Cause it's just, I'm, my heart is so warm thinking about what you stand for. Yeah. Our, our business, uh, uh, got started, uh, by the, uh, McClure's back in 1914, whose family ran it through three generations. Actually, the third generations, there was two separate uh, presidents in, in the early 80s. Uh, we had both a union and a non-union aspect uh, to our HVAC, you know, plumbing business. And uh, the union gave Bill McClure a lot of pressure about that. So he sold the non-union piece of the business uh, to Bob McClure, who ran the company from the early 80s until 2008, uh, you know, when I came in. And, uh, you know, really, uh, you know, it was in that time uh, that the business grew, you know, dramatically. It probably grew five or six times between the early 80s and uh, 2008. 
And uh, Bob McClure was looking to retire. Uh, There was no heir apparent from the family. And, uh, you know, one of the things I came out of my uh, MBA at Cornell that I did between 2002 and 2004 was really to to try my hand at at running a business. I had some philosophies, uh, you know, having experienced a number of large and small businesses and just my upbringing in sports, you know, really believing there was a, a, a a way to get everybody running in the, in the same direction uh, that that would produce, you know, better results for the business. And so uh, HB McClure was a, just a really well-known name in Harrisburg. And uh, so I came in as a minority owner in 2008. And, you know, if we think back to 2008, uh, Mm. April 2008, we were in recession and didn't know it yet. And uh, things were going to get really bad. The way our business works is we have a backlog of work. Uh, So we really didn't feel it for that first year. We had record results for the rest of 2008. And, you know, our business really started to suffer as we moved through 2009. And so I was looking for ways uh, to make the transition from Bob McClure to myself more efficient uh, for the business. And I think the first thing you look at uh, when you do that is can you make the deal more tax efficient? And so if you look at tax efficient ways to do uh, transactions, uh, the ESOP, you know, pops right up on any Google search you do. And lo and behold, an ESOP perfectly aligned with what my business philosophy was with getting, you know, at the time, you know, 150, 160 employees, you know, all running in the same direction that we would all benefit from the success uh, that the business would have. And so in October of uh, 2010, uh, we established our, our ESOP and have been an ESOP, you know, ever since. And, you know, I think it was, uh, you know, I would fully say that I had no intentionality around creating an ESOP business. Uh, but by far, it was the seminal event in, in my business career because it really gave me an opportunity uh, to really focus what my professional mission is. And, you know, what I really enjoy doing is creating value. And I think uh, we are uh, doing it for great purpose. Uh, you know, we have, you know, middle-class employees, uh, you know, predominantly that work for us. And this gives us a real opportunity to create wealth for them and to position them well for their retirement. And we're starting to see the fruits of those labor, uh, of that labor already. That's so fabulous. The, uh, for, for listeners, say a little bit more about the, the, university, the universe of kind of ESOP, practically what that means, just a, a little bit of a, a primer on that. Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is most business. So most businesses are established uh, in one of two ways. First of all, there's a large group. Uh, you know, by far the the most businesses are privately held, mostly by individuals or a small group of people that own and operate uh, the business. And so 
all of the value that's created over and above the salary and benefits for the employees goes to that one or small group of managers. And they're, you know, uh, you know, all the, you know, the general pillars of the community that you would see out there that are the CEOs of the, the local businesses, and they reap all the rewards of the business. And the other, you know, big structure is obviously the public markets, um, you know, where, uh, you know, individual shareholders, pension plans benefit from the value that's created from the business. And, you know, what, what, we've done here and what ESOPs do is they allow the value that's created by the business uh, to be shared by all the employees. It's uh, legislatively set how you have to distribute those shares uh, and it allows for all the employees to benefit from it. And that really resonated with me. Um, I've always believed that it takes everybody in your company to be successful. And I really believe uh, that all of your employees should benefit from the value that's created. And this has given us an opportunity to do it, not only um, you know, in, in name and, and being able to publicize that you're employee-owned, but in terms of real value. You know, of our employees uh, that were with us when we started in 2010, the median balance in their ESOP account today is over $200,000 in just 10 years. Uh, you know, so they're well, they have multiple times of their annual income uh, in the balances of their ESOP. And we've done that in only 10 years. Obviously, a career, you know, is 35, 40, you know, 45 years. And so, you know, we're well on our way of accomplishing, you know, our goal of uh, providing a, a retirement income for, for all of our employees and every single employee in our company, you know, shares in that value that we create. Yeah, that's so fantastic. The, the sense, and I'm on the board of, a, of another company that is also an ESOP and the culture and the sense, you know, to your sports analogy of playing the game for each other really is inherently built in. Can you talk about some of the, when you've had conflicts with people and, um, you know, it, there's always some folks, maybe it doesn't work for, or just a little bit of the, the rough stuff, because I don't want to paint it as this perfect glamorous thing for everybody. Yeah, I, I, you know, the, 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 this, the one way I like to uh, approach uh, tough conversations is first, uh, you know, to identify if this conversation is one where the advice you're given is truly 100 uh, percent to make the person better that you're having the conversation with and not to intermingle that with a conversation uh, that you have an ulterior motive uh, for wanting to have this conversation. Uh because the way I like to start the conversation where you're truly just trying to make the person you're having the conversation with better is to first establish, um, you know, trust with that person that that's exactly what you're trying to do. You know, this advice I'm giving you, do you trust that I have your best interest at heart? That the reason that I'm having this conversation with you 
is to help you to become better, to help you become more successful, to help you achieve what you want to achieve, you know, as opposed to something I want to achieve. And if you can establish that trust, I think it makes that person much more open to the feedback. And so I think of some of the, you know, the, the conversations that I've had with employees, uh, you know, in our company that exhibit bad behavior, um, you know, that's leading them not to accomplish, you know, what they want to accomplish. And, you know, to try to get them that I'm coming to this conversation truly just to help them uh, to be better and to help them become a better person and achieve what they're trying to achieve. To the extent you can do that, I found it to be really successful. And I think, frankly, you know, I learned this strategy. It works really well at home with your kids. You know, if you can establish with your kids that you're just trying to help them to be better for what they want to achieve, not for your own purposes. You know, it was, you know, my kid's success was, for me, was never because of, you know, how I wanted them to, to represent me or the family. I wanted their success for them. And if they truly buy in to that your ulterior motive, they're going to be much more open to your feedback. Whereas if they think you're just doing it because of, you know, how it looks to the public for you or all that, I think that's where, you know, they become untrusting of your advice and, and wonder, you know, why uh, you're doing this. Yeah, I love that. The helping someone appreciate you're really trying to help them. And I know lots of times it's a it's it takes the the leader, the person giving the the input to just appreciate like what is my intention? So what I hear you is just being very clear in your intention when you have to uh, when you want to help someone and having them actually believe that. And then I think I appreciate you sharing the reality, Bob. You know, sometimes there's these other agendas at stake. And so it's a matter of helping someone, I think, appreciate that they are a piece of this and there's other pieces and that if they were in your shoes, here's how they might see it, which is not so easy because we tend to receive, you know, input that's kind of all about me. And in this case, you're saying this is really not all about you. There's other forces at play. And it's leading me to have this kind of a decision um, that they may not like, but they could understand why you need to do what you need to do. And, and, uh, to and I think it's a on. really big mistake to try to use that strategy if it's not true. People smell that. You're trying to get their trust and they absolutely will not trust you if they know that you're really trying to do this for your own purpose or for the purpose of the business or something, you know, outside of what you've said. And, and I just, you know, if you try to use that strategy that it's really about them when it's really about you, that's a disaster. You know, yeah. that's not going to work. Yeah. Um, you know, people smell that from a mile away. Yeah, that's the keeping it authentic, being real. Um, you know, so one of the things to jump, I, I love that you're growing through acquisitions. Obviously, this was something near and dear to my heart. And it maybe it wasn't the most uh, proactive thing. So just talk us through how did this acquisition uh, 
focus happen and, you know, how does it work and what are some of the challenging parts of, of growing that way? Yeah, uh, no doubt. You know, again, this is something that I'd like to say was very strategic and I knew all along that this was, uh, you know, what I was going to do with the business. But the, the reality is it was very much uh, a lot of happenstance. Um, we got an opportunity, you know, relatively early on uh, after I was here uh, to acquire a, a couple of local fuel delivery businesses. Um, you know, as, as everybody probably knows, um, you know, heating your house with fuel oil uh, is a business that is dying and is, you know, every year there's less fuel oil being delivered to houses because we'll replace units uh, that take a different type of fuel uh, whenever they need replaced. And so, you know, that sets an opportunity, uh, you know, for, for somebody in a, in a local market or even, you know, national uh, to consolidate, you know, that business, you know, so you have a little more uh, pricing power, uh, you know, and we had done that as an exit strategy for a couple of businesses here locally. Um, and so through that, those were announced in the, in the business media here. And in 2014, I had a business broker uh, that reached out to us about a, you know, an HVAC business outside of Philadelphia, uh, which I took the meeting because I was interested, but really didn't think we had the financial wherewithal to do it. And the reality is, if I look back on it, we didn't have the financial wherewithal to do it. Uh, it just worked out really well for us. Uh, but lo and behold, in 2014, we acquired uh, IT Landis in Harleysville, uh, which has just been a wonderful addition uh, to our company. Uh, it worked out extremely well. And that really showed us uh, that there could be a lot of benefits to us growing our business through acquisition. I think first and foremost, it allowed us to diversify from a geographic standpoint. So construction is very local. So certain uh, local areas will, will be booming while others will be struggling. Um, and so it allows us to do, diversify from a geographic standpoint. And it also, when we acquire these businesses, lots of times they have an expertise in a line of business uh, that maybe we don't have. And it allows us to expand the types of business that we can provide service for. So IT Landis did uh, a lot of work in, you know, multifamily uh, you know, housing um, and elder care, things that we didn't do here in Harrisburg. And so it broadened us out there. Well, I, I think the one thing we were very good at seeing the opportunity that this created for us then going forward after we did this one deal. Um, and since then, you know, we've expanded to where we're, you know, nine different divisions, uh, you know, across the country have expanded our business lines, we're in multiple geographies, uh, and really have used this as a very important part of our value creation for our employees. And it is also, you know, stabilized our business uh, because of the diversification. And I think the key for us is, you know, first of all, uh, we take a culture first uh, approach, um, to the businesses we're going to acquire. If, if we don't feel like the culture is a good fit with our business, you know, we're going to walk away right away. And, 
lots of times you identify that in a first one hour call, you realize that we're just not closely aligned with how we, you know, our worldview is just not in line with the owner. Um, and, and so that's a really important part. And I think the interesting thing is uh, that, you know, our real niche as an acquirer is giving owners an opportunity uh, to harvest their asset um, while um, at the same time taking care of their employees. And those owners have a tendency to try to find us. You know, they're looking for something different. You know, private equity, whether it be real or imagined, has a, a reputation of not being very caring of the employees post-transaction. And, and so these owners have, a, a, you know, an ability uh, to find us. And it's worked uh, extremely well now to where we've done 23 acquisitions. And, you know, we just stay true to what our niche is, you know, what we're trying to do. Uh, and I think it's paid big dividends for our employee owners. Ugh, so awesome. I love the, the sophistication of that in the place where maybe people wouldn't see it. And then the ability to honor, you know, these owners, I imagine a lot of family, multi-generational businesses and giving them a chance to feel like they're um, keeping, you know, taking care of folks and in, in creating something even bigger. You know, this this notion of 200 years just sort of blows me away that you have this, the courage, the audacity to state it. And, you know, you mentioned this culture. What, share just a little bit about what, you know, if I look in, like, how how do you describe the culture? How do people describe it? Um, and then the 200 year thing is, are people, are their heads around that? Or is that more of a management focus? Well, uh, first of all, um, you know, we view ourselves as being very purpose oriented, very mission oriented. You know, so our purpose uh, is uh, to create the best place to work and create value for our employee owners. And so I, I think our employees clearly understand, you know, what we're here to do. Um, and we really encourage them to take the bull by the horns and to make this place a, a great place to work. You know, I really describe, you know, as leadership, we have the ability uh, to articulate, you know, what we want this company to be, but it's this, you know, 1700 employee owners uh, that are truly going to make the culture. You know, it's not what you say your culture is. It's the actions and the behaviors that you exhibit every day. Uh, you know, and that is really uh, important to us. You know, we have a set of core values. It might not surprise you that the first one and foundational is trust. Uh, you know, team is a, a second one, uh, grit and growth. And, you know, we try to live by these. We have a set of behaviors within each one of the core values uh, that we talk about and exhibit. It gives our employees a language, you know, to challenge what we're doing or to reinforce an action uh, that we've taken, you know, I think we got rave reviews from our employees about how we handled the early days uh, of COVID, uh, you know, that we really took a lot of actions that thought of our employees first, well before, uh, you know, PPP was announced and you, and you realized you were going to get some support from, from the government to, to get through it. Uh, 
And, and so, you know, we're really proud of that. And, you know, we, we take a lot of pride, you know, in, in what we say is what we do. And, and so, you know, I think our employees recognize that. Uh, and, you know, the, the proof has been in the pudding over the last 10 years. And so, you know, we stay very focused on being very mission, vision, core value oriented, you know, and, and our vision for how we operate starts with engaged employees, you know, so we're focused on taking the actions that are going to create an environment where our employees can be engaged. If we do that, uh, we'll create raving fans in our customers. If we create raving fans, we're going to produce superior financial results. And just because of the way we're structured, that gets reinvested in some way or another right back into our employees. And, and so that's how we try to live and operate, you know, and really embrace our employees participating to make that happen, you know, and, and actually, you know, demand that they make it happen. You know, it's, it's part of what we're trying to do here. I love it. It could not get better. It's just so inspiring. What um, example you are to the world. Final question. We'll wrap here. What was it like for you today, Bob, to share your journey? You know, it was really, uh, you know, I spent a few minutes, uh, you know, thinking about it beforehand, which is not something you, you have a tendency to do. Uh, so it was really fun for me Uh you know, to, to think about, you know, particularly professionally, this, this 52 year journey and what happened and, and really what my worldview is and who were the people that influenced it. And, you know, I think when you take the time to do that, you know, you really realize, you know, how many people and how many experiences have really contributed the play into what you are. And you're really, just a voice of that legacy, you know, those people that touched you. And, you know, I think it, it also shows the importance, you know, of taking the time to help others. You know, anytime, you know, we can help the folks that are that are just coming into the business uh, to form them in a positive, you know, way, we need to take that time and, you know, to really uh, embrace the impact you can have on others, you know, when you do it. And I, you know, and, and I also, as, as I thought about some of these things, thought about some of my, you know, you know, some of my experiences that I, that I wasn't as proud of, as well as leaders that I worked for uh, that didn't exhibit the characteristics, you know, that I wanted to. And I will tell you, I really believe you can learn just as much from bad leaderships or seeing bad actions, you know, as from the great ones. We just have a tendency uh, to, you know, not really open our eyes to the value of, you know, we learn from what we don't want to do sometimes. You know, you'll hear that about, you know, kids that go out and do really hard, dirty jobs, you know, that are, you know, their parents are trying to get them to college and it shows them what they don't want to do. Um, and I think it's the same thing for our career or life, you know, as we watch folks, you know, we get the opportunity to say, well, that's not how I want to be and make sure you're not. And, and so many times, you know, I think we are not open to those lessons and we need it. And so it was a really fun process for me. You know, I, I, you know, just took a little bit of time, uh, 
to think about it. And it's, it, it really was humbling. I love it. I appreciate you, Bob, you and the company. What a great example of what's possible when you all come together, you're working for the greater good, creating this evergreen value. You're inspiring. I, uh, I want to thank you for being part of the solution. If I can be of any help, you know, I'm here for you. I'm cheering for you. You take good care. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Oh, my thought for the week, courtesy of Bob, strive to be the best version of yourself. Get a little bit better each day. That's their company mantra. And that's a wrap. I thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Bob's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too.